0: For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. Because it is in your word that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed to us the purpose that you have for the human race. You have revealed to us the purpose you had in calling out Abraham and giving him a promise. You have revealed to us the purpose that underlies the Torah of the Old Testament and the covenants that were given to Israel, the land covenant, the uh, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And, Father, you have revealed to us that you are the sovereign overseer of human history. And things do not happen by chance. We do not live in a world or a universe that is governed by chance, but one wherein you work out your purposes uh, within human history. And so, Father, within your word, you give us that which we need in order to properly understand and interpret all of the things that happen around us that we can gain an understanding of the meaning for our lives and that we can therefore orient to your plan and purposes and we can have happiness, we can have stability, and we can have joy even in the midst of the most unpleasant circumstances. And Father, we pray that as we wrap up our study in Kings this morning, that you would help us to see the lessons that you have for us in this study and that they might be reinforced by the Holy Spirit this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This last week I received an interesting email from uh, the daughter of someone here in the congregation who doesn't live here locally but frequently does uh, listen, live stream. And uh, she was up in the Washington, D.C. area several months ago, had the opportunity to go talk to a number of the wounded warriors at Walter Reed, and she met a chaplain there. And when she, uh, she managed to talk to this chaplain some about some different things, and they have exchanged a few emails over the course of the last uh, few months. And recently, in an email, this uh, chaplain, who spends much of his time ministering and dealing with men whose bodies have been often shattered in horrible ways by uh, the instruments of war in Afghanistan, uh, he asked her a question. He said, "Where is God?" In all of this. Now, that's an interesting question. You might want to think about how you would answer that. But I want to transpose or shift the context of that question from the modern circumstance of warfare in Iraq to a question perhaps that a 6th century BC Jewish person would ask while they have been physically. Uh, removed from the land that God had promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, they have probably gone through the horrors of the siege of Jerusalem, not just the final siege and destruction in 586, but perhaps they uh, survived the two previous sieges of Nebuchadnezzar in 605 and 597. Now they have been uprooted. They and their family, perhaps they have seen uh, horrible things as they have seen some of their loved ones, some of their family members uh, starve to death, go through all of the horrors of undergoing a military siege uh, and capture, which may have included uh, horrible torture. And now they have been physically taken to uh, land in the east where they don't know anyone, where they don't know, don't know anything. And now they are basically captives in a foreign land. And the question that they would be asking is, why did God let this happen to us? How can God be in this? How can we believe in a God that allows this kind of suffering and horror to take place in the lives of people that he has sworn that he loves? Now, this is a common question that people ask. And not too many people seem to really be able to understand that question. It's basically the same question that this this chaplain articulated. And so when we go to our study of kings that we've had for the last um, three years or four years, and we have gone through both First and Second Kings, that is one of the questions that is being answered. Kings was written probably, we believe, by Jeremiah. We're not absolutely certain there's no uh, name affixed to the uh, 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 Manuscripts. There's no indication. There's no statement anywhere that this was written by Jeremiah. But the themes that we have, the key words, the the themes of God's righteousness, God's faithfulness to his covenant, the warnings again and again to the uh, Israelites to be obedient so that God can bless them, the call back to God again and again, the warnings that God in his justice must bring condemnation judgment upon those who are disobedient to him, are the same themes that we have in the prophecy in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. The verbiage, the language, the themes are all pretty much the same. And so it is believed, and it is the tradition within uh, among the Jewish rabbis going back before the foundation of the church, back into the uh, the last uh, couple of centuries in the period before Christ, uh, back into that, that period that, Kings was actually written by by Jeremiah. There's a lot of similarities there. And that, therefore, this, this collection of episodes that describe the history of the United Kingdom of Israel from the death of David uh, to his son Solomon, then the fracture of the kingdom into the northern kingdom of ten tribes, the southern kingdom of two tribes, The eventual decline, deterioration, and discipline of the northern kingdom is there uh, defeated and taken out by the uh, Assyrians, deported to various parts within the Assyrian Empire. And then uh, approximately 150 years later, the same thing happened to the southern kingdom of Judah as they were defeated by uh, Babylon and deported to uh, Babylon as well. And so it is written by Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem, probably in the last years of his life. And so it was not written as a teaching instrument for the uh, Israelites while they were still in the land. It's not written as a warning to the northern kingdom. It's not written as a warning to the southern kingdom. It was written to be read by those Jews that were in exile, that had been uh, removed from the land that were in what has come to be called the Diaspora, those that were in uh, Egypt and those that were in uh, Babylon, to answer the question, why did this happen? Where is God in all of this? And what lessons should we learn as God's people so that this doesn't happen again? So keep that in mind as we uh, review what, has, what we've studied uh, over the last two or three years. As we look at this book, we are, I want to remind you that the reason I keep referring to it as the Book of Kings is that originally it was written as one book. The reason it was split into two is because it couldn't all fit on one scroll. And so at some time in antiquity, it was divided into two scrolls and was split where it is split between First and Second Kings, which is kind of an awkward place uh, to split it. But when we look at the two books and we look at the trends, at the narrative, at the story that takes place and what happened in the history of Israel, there are various contrasts that we should note. First Kings begins at a high point in the history of Israel in the United Kingdom as David is now in his... Uh, Final years, we witness the transition of power from David to his son Solomon, and then Solomon expands the kingdom a little further and builds the temple, and the opening of First Kings focuses on the glories of Israel, the wonderful blessings of God to obedient kings and obedient people. And when we come to the end of Second Kings, what we find is the kingdom has fragmented, the northern kingdom has been destroyed and decimated and its people deported the southern kingdom has also finally been destroyed and defeated and its people destroyed and the final chapter focuses not on the kings of israel but on the king of babylon nebuchadnezzar first kings opens with israel in a position of obedience to the torah and second kings uh, ends rather with israel in disobedience 1 Kings begins with the temple being built. 2 Kings ends with the temple destroyed and in ruins. 1 Kings traces the decline of the nation from its spiritual high point to its uh, into apostasy. 2 Kings continues to trace that apostasy and shows the ultimate consequences when people are unfaithful to God. And then... Finally, 1 Kings opens with all of the blessings that God poured out upon the nation as they had a rich, large, materially prosperous nation that had sent navies around the world, that traded with all nations, was at the high point of its its history. And then at the end of 2 Kings, we see the nation under judgment. This is a context of what I read this morning in Lamentations, and I'll just focus on two verses in the first chapter to remind you, where Jeremiah describes what has taken place, that Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations, no longer what God called her to be as a light to the nations, but now a slave nation, enslaved in uh, among the Gentile nation. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. This is when you really begin to see some of the uh, early stages of anti-Semitism in history. And, of course, many of you are familiar with the story of what takes place at the uh, after the exile, after the actual return from the exile among the Jewish community, in uh, Babylon during the time of the Persian kingdom under Esther with the rise of Haman and his uh, attempt to get all of the Jews uh, destroyed and murdered. In Lamentations one five, we read, Her adversaries have become the master, her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her. And notice that Jeremiah puts the focus on the ultimate causation on the Lord. It is the result of the people's decisions, but God in his righteousness and in his sovereignty rules in the affairs of mankind, and he is faithful, as Jeremiah will point out, he is faithful to what he had promised Israel at the very beginning, that if you are obedient, I will bless you beyond measure. But if you are disobedient, then I will bring all of these calamities upon you, even to the point of removing you from the land and making you a slave to all of the nations. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. Now what this focuses our attention on are the three major Covenants that God has made with uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just a quick review, we see the first covenant is the Abrahamic covenant, focusing on three aspects, a promise of a specific piece of real estate, the land promise, a promise that in Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed, that it is through Israel that all nations will ultimately be blessed. This ultimately, we believe, was uh, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that Israel would be a blessing to all. Each of these aspects was then developed in different covenants: the land promise in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The thing we want to focus on, first of all, is what happens in um, with the Abrahamic covenant that God promised that He would bless those who bless. Abraham, but those who curse Abraham, those who treat him lightly or with disrespect, as I pointed out, see, is the thrust of that Hebrew word. It's two different Hebrew words used for cursing here. Those who treat Abraham lightly, God says, I will curse or judge harshly. And so God has preserved Israel, even in disobedience, as as the apple of his eye. And so down through the ages we must understand because of the Abrahamic covenant that ultimately world history turns on God's plan for Abraham and the descendants of Abraham even when they are not in the land and even when uh, they were disobedient as we see in the Old Testament and we believe is also true today. So it is always a tragedy when we see Christians who turn against Israel because of their failure to properly interpret uh, the Scripture. Uh, on Friday, there was this article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal written by uh, two rabbis who are associated uh, with, um, I believe, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and it's called Presbyterians Against Israel. Now, last night when we had our Christmas party, no less than six or seven people pointed out this article to me. I'm so glad I have such a well-read congregation. And everybody likes to remind me that, oh, he said everything you've been saying. I know, like that validates me. Well, it's, it's true. You have Presbyterian theology, everything but, practically speaking, everything but a dispensational theology takes Israel to be, in some sense, a metaphorical term someplace in the scriptures. And as these two rabbis point out, that replacement theology has been a heresy or an errant viewpoint in Christianity since the Middle Ages, and it is the idea that at some place the term Israel used in the scripture no longer refers to the literal physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it refers to some... Uh, It refers somehow to the church or to Christians. And that is the root of all Christian anti-Semitism down through the centuries. And so this article just points out once again that the uh, Presbyterian, the United Presbyterian Church has come out uh, against uh, uh, Israel in a pro-Palestinian statement. And this isn't just the liberal, uh, this just doesn't affect the liberal uh, Presbyterian wing and liberal Protestants, although it does, but it also affects any group that still holds to some form of replacement theology. And so uh, I have that will be emailed out uh, to the congregation. The second significant covenant of the Old Testament is the Davidic covenant, where God promised uh, David an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Now, the outworking of kings is really related in a in a much more detailed way to this covenant. because what happens in the history of the kings, as you read about the kings of Judah, uh, you read about what happens to Solomon and then the division of the kingdom, and you read about the kings in the north and the kings in the south, what is absent when we come to the end of second kings, is the question, what has happened to mankind? What has happened to leadership? There are only a couple of wonderful examples of leaders who were positive to God. We think of Hezekiah, Josiah, uh, one or two others in the south. There were only eight kings, eight kings of twenty in the south that were not evil. And there were none in the north that were evil. And part of this is the It's the purpose of the writer to show that no human king will ever be the ideal king that God had promised uh, through the prophets and had promised to David. That there is something flawed in the character of man. There is something that is constitutionally wrong with man. That when we read through 1st and 2nd Kings, we see again and again and again that even though there are times when the nation turns to God and there are these moments of of light, that it always gets dark again. That the trajectory in human history is always against God. The trajectory is always towards darkness and evil. As a writer of the Gospel of John said, that men loved the darkness. And so we see that trend again and again, and we're left at the end of 2 Kings wondering who is going to be able to fulfill the Davidic promise, that there would be an eternal king of righteousness who would establish a righteous kingdom for Israel. And of course, that leaves open the reality that no human king can ever fulfill that. That is the message that we find in Isaiah. It's the message we find in Jeremiah. It's the message we find in Daniel and in Zechariah and other Old Testament prophets that the only true king of Israel that will fulfill those promises is the king that is not merely human, but is one who is also fully God. Not just a man that has been somehow elevated uh, with an addition of divinity, but one who was eternally God. Who entered into human history as Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 9:6 through a virgin conception and a virgin birth, and so to understand the, the, what the writer of, of uh, Kings is saying, you must understand the background. The, the, the framework is the Davidic, uh, the Davidic covenant, and so I had this little chart that I uh, developed where we have the Abrahamic covenant as the overall overarching uh, covenant that governs God's relationship to all nations actually, but specifically to Israel. And then within that you have the Mosaic covenant, which was designed to be a temporary covenant. Uh, Within that you have the land covenant and also the Davidic covenant. And this is what enables us to understand the message of kings. Now in terms of the Mosaic covenant, we have to go back to Deuteronomy. We could go to Leviticus 26, but Deuteronomy gives us a more succinct summary. And Kings actually is really a a commentary, a historical commentary by, by Jeremiah, if he was the one who wrote it, showing that what God promised to Israel through Moses in the Torah, was played out on the scenes of history, in the history of the kingdom of Israel, the United Kingdom, and then uh, the divided kingdom. Because it is at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the Torah, that God promised, in, in summary, God promised Israel, number one, that if you are obedient, then I will bless you beyond all measure. But if you are disobedient, then I'm going to remove you uh, from the land. I will bring numerous judgments upon you. And so, in summary, we see this mentioned in a couple of passages in Deuteronomy 28. In verses 1 and 2, God says, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. See, this is illustrated for us in, in David. It's illustrated in, Sam, in, in Solomon in his early life in the first 20 or 30 years of his reign when he walked in obedience to God. The nation was blessed beyond measure. But when Solomon turned against God and began to lead the nation into idolatry, that's when things began to fall apart, and that was the high point spiritually for the nation Israel. That was their high point in terms of God's physical blessing on the nation. But it is the faithful fulfillment of his promise that he had made in Deuteronomy 28. At other times in the southern kingdom, when you had kings such as Asa early on and later on under, under Hezekiah and Josiah and the other good kings, it is when the kings are leading the people in obedience that the nation was again blessed. But when they were disobedient, God brought the na- nation under judgment. The judgments were announced in Deuteronomy 28, 15. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then there is this long list of various ways in which God would bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. In verses 23 to 25, we have the statements, And your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. And this we see fulfilled, especially at the time of Elijah, when Elijah came on the scene as a prophet sent from God to the northern kingdom. When Ahab was the king, Ahab is the uh, ultimate picture, the poster child for evil in the northern kingdom. He is the one who who married Jezebel, the daughter of the king and high priest of Baal worship in Phoenicia, and he is the one who brought Baal worship and the whole fertility worship and prosperity cult into the northern kingdom with all of the attendant horrors of child sacrifice and temple prostitution and everything else. It was at that time that God brought this level of judgment upon the northern kingdom and brought a famine upon the land and uh, Elijah announced that that it would not rain again until he said so and it was specifically that must be understood in light of this promise that God had made uh to the nation Israel that he would judge them in this way so just as God was faithful to his promise to bless the kingdom if they were obedient and he blessed them beyond measure when they were disobedient God was also consistent he was faithful to his promise ...to bring those judgments upon them. And then verse 24, uh, "...the Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven... ...it shall come down on, t- on you until you are, are destroyed." And then uh, the military aspect. All of, of course, verses 23 and 24 would impact the uh, economic circumstances. It would bring famine. It would b- bring the destruction of wealth. It would bring the horrible suffering and disease and many other consequences." Verse 25 talks about the military consequence. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. And so we saw that worked out in the history of the northern kingdom. Again and again and again, they are in military conflicts. Sometimes they are in military conflicts with the uh, kingdom of Judah in the south, They're in military conflicts with the Syrians out of Damascus. They're in military conflicts with the Moabites and the Ammonites. And then at the end, they, of course, are overrun uh, by the Assyrian uh, Empire. And and the final stage of discipline was summarized in Deuteronomy 28, 32, and 33. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long, and there shall be no strength in your hand. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your, la- your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. That's a pretty sad note. It's a pretty down note. Just like when you read Lamentations, you read much of Lamentations as, as Jeremiah details the rebelliousness of the northern kingdom, the horrors of the judgment, the terrors that they went through. Uh, as they were uh, destroyed by the Babylon, Babylonian armies. It's just such a downer, but it doesn't end there because God's plan never ends with just the announcement of judgment. Judgment always in God's plan is accompanied by God's grace. He always offers hope. There's always an opportunity to change, to turn. There's always that offer of God of grace to turn back in obedience. And this is how Deuteronomy ends. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, we're told, Now it shall come to pass when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse. When you've gone through both of these, both the positive and the negative trajectories, uh, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations. When you've been scattered throughout the world in all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return, there's that Hebrew word shuv, you return, uh, to to return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. Now that never happened completely. It happened partially in, in 538, when you had the first return under Zerubbabel and the return that led to the second temple period that ended in AD 70. But it wasn't a complete return, for you, you still had the at least half, if not more, of the, of the Jewish people who were in the world at the time of Christ were still in the diaspora. They never returned to the land. So this promise to return all of them to the land was never fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled. If God fulfilled all the other promises, he must be a God who will fulfill these promises. So First Kings gives us that framework for looking then at history on the basis of what happened in the past. So just a quick review of the breakdown. In the first 11 chapters, we focus on the United Kingdom, the death of David and the time of Solomon. Then the kingdom is split because God judges the nation because of Solomon's uh, idolatry and disobedience. And we have the period of the divided kingdom. And then finally, after the destruction of the northern kingdom, the time of a single kingdom. So this takes us from the period of 971 when uh, Solomon ascends the throne to 586 B.C. when the southern kingdom is destroyed by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. And so we see this basic breakdown as we've studied, uh, studied in the past. The, the focal point is there in the center, those 28 chapters that focus on the divided section of the kingdom in fulfilling all the promises of God. We've looked at the, each of these different sections. Uh, we've had these charts to, to, uh, that, that summarize the framework of the book that it is during the time of the United Kingdom that we have primarily blessing. But from chapter 11 on, there is this decline because of Solomon's disobedience. God blessed him so richly, gave him such prosperity, but then he failed the prosperity test. Like almost every one of us does, and like every nation in the history of the world has done, we fail the prosperity test because when God blesses us and makes us prosperous, we stop looking to God as the source of our blessing and happiness, and we start looking to the blessings as the source of our happiness. And therein lies the path of destruction. Then the period of the divided kingdom. Uh, we see this the, in First Kings uh, a 90 year period. And the thrust of this period is on the focus of the period of Ahab and Jezebel and the horrors of that time. And how God raises up first Elijah and then Elisha as uh, instruments of grace to bring and to call the people back to obedience to God. And then finally, in the period of the single kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the 135 years uh, of Hezekiah uh, down to uh, uh, Zechariah, we see the collapse of the nation, two great periods of reform under Hezekiah and later under Josiah. If we just look at the structure of the book in terms of its literary uh, framework, this is a chiasm you see that the center of this chiasm looks at the Amri dynasty, the dynasty of Amri, the father of Ahab, and uh, Ahab and his descendants. And this is the thrust from chapter 16 in 1 Kings to 2 Kings 12. This is the focal point of this book. It is on the horrors of apostasy and how it is the turning from God to the worship of idols. And it, this is not just the worship of idols made of wood and stone and metal. But today we often worship the more abstract idols of the mind. We still worship the materialism, the material things and prosperity that are at the core of the fertility religions in the, in the ancient world. But we worship many other things that come between us and God. We worship things that uh, in our lives that are more important to us than the study of God's word, more important to us than our study of uh, our, our coming to Bible class, more important to us than our spiritual life because we are consumed with the details of life rather than with God. Now, as I pointed out in in going through the Mosaic Law, just to remind you what um, what God promised, was that there would be this suffering, destruction of the nation. But that would not be the end. There was always the the hope of a return, the promise that if they would turn back to God, then God would restore them to the land. And I just want you to remember what he says here in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 and 3, as we get into the last couple of comments I have to make in terms of this review. What I want to focus on now is the key events that take place in Kings. As I pointed out many times in the way I approach the Old Testament, is that this provides us with a framework for thinking about the issues of life. That God didn't just reveal these things because they're interesting history, they're nice stories, they're, they're uh, people who have, uh, interesting things happen to them and their flaws as well as their, uh, virtues revealed. God revealed this thing, these things to us to teach us about Him, to teach us that mankind is flawed. We are uh, we are all sinners, we are all depraved, that we cannot solve the problems on our own no matter what we do. The only solution is the divine solution. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you see that there are key events that occur historically. And it's around those events that God communicates key packages of revelation, key packages of doctrine that cannot be separated from the reality of the historical occurrence. If the historical event did not occur as the Bible says it did, then the lesson has no foundation. It becomes no more significant and no more uh, true than uh, m- various mythologies and various other religions. It's just uh, human thought that is uh, fallible And can fall apart. But what we have in the word of God is God's revelation to teach us how to think about the affairs of life. So let's just review the key events that we have in Kings and what they teach us. The temple is the first key event. We have at the beginning of 1 Kings, the death of David, the transfer of power to Solomon, but the focal point is on building the house for God. This is what David wanted to do. David wanted to build a house for God, and God sent Nathan the prophet to him uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and said, you're not going to build a house for me. Instead, I'm going to build a house for you. That was the Davidic covenant. And so that was the focal point. And finally, Solomon is the one who God said would build the house for him. And we have uh, five chapters there at the beginning of uh uh, First Kings that focus on Solomon's construction of the, the temple, the dedication of the temple, all of the sacrifices, all of which speaks of the fact that man is fundamentally unclean; he cannot come into the presence of God unless a cleansing of sin takes place. And then in Solomon's dedicatory prayer, he he focuses on. The failure of Israel, it foreshadows what's going to come in the rest of the two books. He focuses on the promise that had been made by Moses in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that God, you said that we would disobey you, You, we would be taken out of the land. And the focal point of, of Solomon's prayer is to call upon God to be faithful to that promise that when the nation disobeys and is taken out of the land and this temple is destroyed that God would be true to his promises and would bring the nation back and reestablish a more glorious temple uh, in the land. Now, God's answer to that prayer is given in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, a, a set of verses that are often yanked out of context. But when we understand the context in light of Deuteronomy, we understand this can only apply to Israel. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, that is the first temple. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, we read that, or command the locusts to devour the land and send or send pestilence among my people, if my people, that is the house of Israel and the house of Judah, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, And turn from their wicked ways. There's that same word, the the Hebrew word shu, the same word that was used in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verse 2. If my people will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The issue is, number one, God rules in the affairs of man, but he doesn't do so at the expense of human responsibility and human volition. And so at the dedication of the temple, there is this rumbling of a negative foreshadowing that even in the midst of their glory, there's a reminder that the people will turn. They will become disobedient. God will be faithful to his promises. He will bless them in their obedience, and he will discipline them and judge them in their, in their disobedience. So that the next major event we have is the division of the kingdom. Because Solomon turns in his older years he turns away from God, he is influenced by the multitude of wives that he had to worship the gods that they brought with them from the other nations, and he worships uh, allows for idolatry to grow, he worships at their uh, at their various high places, he allows even for human sacrifice with the worship of Chemosh and the human sacrifice and the sacrifice of infants to take place at the end of his reign, so that God is going to Because not destroy the kingdom during his life because of previous obedience, but when he dies, the kingdom will be torn asunder. And so the warning that is given in this whole section dealing with the disobedience of the nation, the apostasy of the nation, is the warning that disobedience brings divine judgment. Disobedience brings national judgment on Israel based on God's promise in the Mosaic Law. And so in the northern kingdom, you have Israel that constantly follows in the footsteps of its first king, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And the first thing Jeroboam did when he became king was he set up two alternate competing worship sites. He basically reinvented uh, Jude, uh, the, the, the Jewish law to fit his own agenda. He set up a competing worship site with a golden calf. He identified as a God who took them out of Egypt. He set up a golden calf in the southern part of the kingdom at Bethel and in the northern part of the kingdom at, uh, at Dan. And so every king after him is described as doing evil in the sight of God because they follow in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevad. And the result ultimately is that God judges the nation again and again. They are defeated militarily. They are invaded again and again. And eventually they are defeated and destroyed by the Assyrian Empire and deported. In Judah, we have a little hope. There are eight obedient kings out of 20, only eight who focus on obeying God. And when they are ruling and there's obedience, then God blesses the nation there 's military security, and there is prosperity, but then their sons or the grandsons would turn against them, turn against God, lead the people back into idolatry and disobedience, and the nation continued on a negative uh, trajectory. The third key event is the rise of two prophets, Elijah first and then elisha. This place takes place uh, takes up the core of this whole narrative at the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings, you have this section from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings 12 focuses on the ministry of these two men over a period of approximately 60 or 70 years. Elijah and Elisha teach the principle of grace before judgment. Uh, They do three things. First of all, in their ministries, they demonstrate the extent of evil in the northern kingdom. You see the horrors of Baal worship. You see the horrors of, of infant sacrifice. You see the horrors of what a man does when he is divorced from God. This, um, so you see the extent of evil in the northern kingdom, and it exposes the rejection of God in the north among the people. That even though they bring blessings, they bring healing, they do many miracles to validate uh, their message, nevertheless, what happens is the people, even though there are times when they temporarily respond, they go right back uh, into their rejection of God, and they're just hardened in their own uh, desire to live their life on their own terms apart from God. And third, they provide convincing proof through the miracles that they perform. Elijah on Mount Carmel and Elisha in various, uh, various other miracles, provide convincing proof and empirical evidence that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is real, that he can provide what Baal can't provide. It is only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that can provide rain and grain and prosperity and blessing, and it is only when they are obedient to God that God will bless the nation. And then fourth, we see the genuine revivals that take place under Hezekiah and Josiah. In each case, those revivals are stimulated by the reading of the law, the reading of the Torah, the reading of the Word of God. Historically, there is no reformation. There's no return to God. There is no renewal uh, uh, among the people if it is not led by a study of the Scripture. There's all kinds of attempts to duplicate this through emotion and singing and worship, but very little Bible teaching. But it is only when the teaching of the word of God is at the core of the people of God's life that there is a true, genuine change and turn uh, towards God. And what we learn in those periods is that it is the word of God, it is the Torah, that's the basis for genuine reform and uh, renewal. Uh, But we also see that it exposes the trend of rebellion against the nation because the people eventually... Uh, turn back, turn away from God's word, and turn back to the idols. And it is in this grace action that uh, God provides the last and final opportunities to the nation to turn back to God, to avoid the judgment that comes in 586 B.C. And so Jeremiah concludes his lament. Really, he reaches the focal point of it when he focuses on God in the middle of Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. He tells us what our focus should be when we think about uh, what God is doing in history. After he has recalled all of the horrors that have recently taken place in his life, the, the three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar, the assaults on Jerusalem, the starvation, the hunger, The episodes where mothers were killing their own children in order to eat them to survive. Uh, After witnessing the deportation of uh, tens of thousands of his uh, fellow Jews to Babylon and all of the physical suffering and horrors that they went through and what he went through as he eventually made his way down to Egypt. All of those things, as he saw all that turmoil, the loss of personal security, the loss of wealth, the loss of home, the loss of family, he says there's only one thing that gives us security. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Even in the midst of judgment, God has always extended grace and judgment and sustains his people. Jeremiah went on to say, These compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God was faithful to those promises in Deuteronomy, both to bless as well as to curse, both to prosper as well as to discipline. And Jeremiah concludes, The Lord is my portion says my soul, therefore I hope in him. I begin by telling you about this question that was written by this chaplain as he observes the horrors and the consequences of warfare in the lives of these soldiers at Walter Reed. He asks the question that so many ask, where's God in all of this? God is not out there in those circumstances. We live in the fallen world, Scripture says. We live in a world that is dominated by human beings who make bad decisions, bringing horrible consequences. Where God is, is in the response of the believer to those circumstances. God is working in the lives of his people. He did in the Old Testament through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, through numerous other believers who spoke truth in the midst of horrible circumstances, who gave real comfort to God's people as they were going through unbelievable suffering. The same thing is true for believers today is that as we see the horrors that will take place in a fallen world, will take place in the devil's world, there is all of this horror and suffering and uh, there's terrible injustice in the fallen world because it is a fallen world. God is not in the injustice. He is not the cause of the suffering, but he is the one who is working in his people to speak the truth so that, like Jeremiah, we can recognize that God is faithful that his compassions fail not, that his mercies are new every morning, and it is the believer, Old Testament and New Testament, it is the believer that is the focal point for un- for the world to understand the grace of God and all that God has given us in solving the problem. We see in Kings, as much as anywhere else in the scripture, the problem of sin. The solution wasn't in a human king But it is in a divine king. And that king came that first Christmas as the angels announced that the king, glory be to God in the highest, because the king was born in Bethlehem. But he was rejected, he was crucified, he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he will return again to establish the Jewish kingdom, the Israelite kingdom promised to David, promised in the new covenant and that is a future when the only time in history that there can be a real utopia a utopia of peace and stability and only because there is a god man sitting on the throne in Jerusalem with our heads bowed and our eyes closed our father we're thankful that we've had this opportunity to go through uh, kings to see these trends to understand the key doctrines that are there how they are replicated again and again throughout Scripture in both the Old Testament and in the New, how in this we see your faithfulness, that even in suffering in the world there is uh, faithfulness from you as you are uh, faithful to your promises, faithful to your covenants, faithful in providing a solution to the sin problem, faithful in providing a Savior that can provide a perfect, complete salvation. That salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but salvation is based on your grace, your work, and it is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, we pray that there's anyone here that has never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, never understood the gospel, never really recognized that there is a problem, and that problem is sin, and there's only one solution, and that is for sin to be completely paid for and dealt with. And that was done by you in your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge anyone here that's never trusted Christ to do so at this time, that they may have the confidence and the conviction that they have eternal life, which can never be taken from them. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we have learned, what we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.